Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and as always, we'll dig into His Word. Father, we give thanks to You that You have saved us from this ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, ministry of judgment that was letters engraved on stones, a law that testified against us, testified to our condemnation, and yet You've delivered Your people from this ministry of death and have brought us into a ministry of life, a ministry of righteousness, a ministry of the Spirit. We're not under the condemnation of the law, we're under justification by grace. We know that the law could never save us, but You have saved us by grace and written Your law on our hearts so that now we love You and obey that law. You've saved us from our sin, from ourself, from the corruption of our own nature, and from the judgment of God that is to come. You've delivered us from all of that out of Satan's kingdom into Your own kingdom. And You have made us a kingdom and priest to You, our God and our Father. And now, Lord, we know that even today there are people who fill synagogues across the world. There are people who even come into our churches today and when the Word of God is preached, the veil of unbelief lies over the eyes of their hearts, blinding them to the glory of God in the face of Christ. But when that veil is removed in Christ, our eyes are open and we're able to behold His majesty. And we're thankful that You've done that for us. We see His glory not because we are smarter than the next person. We see His glory because You've opened our blinded eyes. We see His glory because You've taken the veil away by grace. And now we are able to come on the Lord's Day and open the Scripture and see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as we do that, the Spirit of God is making us more and more into His image. And we give thanks to You for that. We pray that That would be the case this morning, that each of us would be made more like the Savior, that each of us would reflect more of His image, and each of us would live in such a way that would bring much glory to His name. So now help us as we read Your Word, we pray. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, you can uh, go ahead and take them and turn with me again to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And for this morning, we're going to conclude our examination of the passage that we began looking at last week, namely verses 11 through 18. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. John's concern here is for the assurance of his flock, the believers of Asia Minor, those to whom he had been ministering for quite some time now. Remember, church history tells us that at the end of his life, toward the end of the first century, the Apostle John was there in Asia Minor ministering to the churches there. And it was around this time that some false teachers came in and were seeking to deceive the believers there with error, with a counterfeit version of Christianity. They would not have denied Christ altogether. They simply would have denied the truth about Him, much like cults do in our own day. In case you haven't figured out, you can't believe that everyone who says he believes in Christ is a true believer and a true teacher from God. That was the case with the false teachers in Asia Minor. They said they believed in Christ, but they denied the truth about Him. They were, as John referred to them earlier in the letter, anti-Christ. Anti-Christ. So they denied, essentially, the fundamentals of the faith. They denied the true nature of Christ. They denied the necessity of obedience They denied the importance of love, and they were essentially creating their own version of the Christian faith. This, of course, posed a great threat to the churches of Asia Minor, and John wanted to write a letter to them that would be a safeguard for them, that would keep them within the realm of the truth. His desire is that believers be able to distinguish between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity and in doing so, that they would come to have assurance of their salvation. And so John writes a letter here as a series of tests by which we can come to have just that, confidence that we indeed possess eternal life. Confidence 
that we're saved. We all want that. I doubt there's anyone here this morning who is really careless about where he spends eternity. None of us want to live the whole of our lives claiming to be Christians, going to church, only to have lived in a state of self-deception and damn ourselves with false assurance. We want real assurance. Biblical assurance. Sound assurance. You want to know that you're going to heaven when you die. And John writes a letter that helps us know just that. Those who pass the test that John lists in this letter are the ones who can have that assurance. The tests are threefold, as you know. Doctrinal, moral, and social. Doctrinal, moral, and social. The doctrinal test deals with what you believe. The moral test deals with how you live. And the social test deals with how you love. How you, what you believe, how you live, and how you love. True Christians are those who believe the truth about Christ and the Gospel. They love God and others, and they display that love through obedience to God's commandments. That is the litmus test of true Christianity. So the tests then are doctrinal, moral, and social. And this morning in verses 11 to 18, John's focus is on the social test, the relational test, the test of love. Let's read these verses together again. 1 John 3, starting in verse 11. John writes, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children... Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Just a cursory read through the passage makes clear what John's theme is. John's theme is love. The theme here is love. Not only does he use the word eight times in these six verses, but he also used the word back in verse 10. I told you last week that verse 10 was the key to the last passage. But it also contains the key transition statement for this passage. In verse 10, John says this, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. John's making a contrast here between God's children and the devil's children. And there are two distinguishing marks. First, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. If your life is devoid of righteousness and characterized by the practice of sin... John says you do not belong to God. Then here's the transition. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Those are the two categories then that mark God's children. Righteousness and love. The moral test and the social test. And with this statement, John transitions from the moral to the social. His theme in verses 4-10 to 10 is that if your life is is marked by righteousness, you can have confidence you're a true believer. His theme in verses 11 to 18 is that if your life is marked by love, you can have confidence that you're a true believer. Those are the marks of true children of God. So there is a contrast here then. John has made it clear all throughout the letter that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There is no middle ground. Jesus said that. Jesus said you're either what? For me or against me. There's no other option. There's no alternative. So John's made that clear. There's either believer or unbeliever. Christians are anti-Christ. Children of God are children of the devil. And the difference between the two is a difference of love and hatred. Love and hatred. So love marks true believers. Love and righteousness. And I told you last week that love and obedience cannot be separated. The two go together. The moral test and the social test are inextricably linked. 
In Matthew 22, Jesus said the greatest commandment in the law is what? Love. Love God and love your neighbor. In Romans 13, Paul says the same thing. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is what carries out the law. That's why James, in chapter 2, verse 8, says that love is the royal law according to the Scripture. It's the royal law according to the Scripture because it fulfills the rest of the law. If you love God and you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the whole law. So there's a connection then between love and obedience. And that connection is obvious throughout 1 John. Go to chapter 5 for a moment. Chapter 5, 1 John 5. And here in verses 2 and 3, John makes this connection crystal clear. Chapter 5, verse 2. John says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. In other words, love for God and love for others is demonstrated through obedience. Love for God and love for others is demonstrated through obedience. Often on the streets I talk with people and they say things like, well, you know, I'm not a great person, but I'm, I'm a good enough person. I, I, love, I try to love other people and not do them wrong. I'm a sinner, but I try not to wrong other people. That's impossible. To sin is to wrong other people. Then I ask them, how many lies have you told in your life? Oh, I can't count them. Well, you've wronged your neighbor. That's how many times you've wronged your neighbor and deceived your neighbor. You've stolen from your neighbor. You've uh, blasphemed the God of heaven. You can't sin without wronging God and wronging your, your neighbor. And therefore, true love produces obedience to God. Which means if your life is marked by sin, do you know what the problem is? The problem is you have a love problem. That's what John is saying. If your life is marked by rebellion against the law of God, you have a love problem. Those two go together, obedience and love. In 2 John verse 6, he makes that connection again. He says, this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. That's love. That's love. Love, as we'll see later in the passage, is more than a fuzzy feeling, isn't it? Love is more than a holiday where we give people chocolates. Love is obedience to the law of God. That's what love looks like. Now, in our culture today, you can go back to chapter 3 now. In our culture today, obviously, love is a rare thing. You can look around and obviously it doesn't take a genius to see that. Love is a rare thing today. We use the word, we talk about the word, we sing about love. We are, we're a culture seemingly consumed with love. You just turn on most TV shows and you get Hallmark channels and then you listen to the music that comes on the radio and it's love, 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 love. It's all about love. We, and like I said, we even have a holiday in which we celebrate love. But unfortunately, I don't think most people really understand what love is. They don't understand what it is. Love is often mistaken for a fuzzy feeling, the utterance, mere utterance of words, uh, a heart that you give to somebody for a, a holiday, something like that. But essentially, what people really love, here's the problem. People love themselves. People love themselves. Self-love is often mistaken for real love. Think about marriage. Marriage today is I do. I do. Till death do us part. Oh, not really. Until I'm not satisfied anymore. Then I'm out. Then I'm done. That's not love. That's a love of self. That's the problem. People love themselves. And Scripture is clear that this is the case. They're clear that people do not, Scripture's clear, people do not love God, nor do they naturally love other people. And even more than that, it's not only that they don't love God and that they don't love people, naturally we actively hate God and hate people. In Romans chapter 1, verse 30, as Paul is expounding on the universal guilt and depravity of man, he says this, they are haters of God. God-haters. That's the problem. It's not that we're just naturally good people who make mistakes, it's that we hate God and are in rebellion against Him. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul further defines the love life of the natural unconverted person. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the issue. That's the issue. People don't love God. They don't love Christ. They love sin and themselves. In Titus 3.3, he further defines it. He says, before we're converted, we are hateful in hating one another. Look around, right? Watch the news. There's riots, and there's people being killed, and people being stabbed, and stores being robbed, because people have a love problem. People are given over to hatred. People don't love God, and they don't love those made in the image of God. They just love themselves. But John makes it clear here in this text that this is not the case among true Christians. True Christians who have been transformed by the gospel are no longer dominated by hatred, but love. Love. Unlike the children of the devil who hate, the children of God love. Love is now the new dominant habitual pattern of their life. And that's what makes love so important. That's what makes it so important. And in this passage, John is going to define Christian love for us by presenting four lessons on love. Four lessons on love. We looked at the first two last week, and we'll look at the other two this morning. But before we do that, let me just quickly recap the first two for you. The first lesson on love that John presented to us was the antiquity of love. The antiquity of love. We saw that in verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love is not a new message. Love is old. Love is old. We've had it from the beginning. From the beginning of creation, from the beginning of the Bible, from the beginning of the ministry of Christ and His apostles, and in one sense, from the beginning of our Christian lives. Ever since we were converted, we've had this command and message to love. At conversion... The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, pours out the love of God, and thus teaches us supernaturally to love one another. So love is an old message that we've had from the beginning. But not only did John teach us about the antiquity of love, he also taught us about the antithesis of love. The antithesis of love. If you're having trouble spelling that, here's another word. The opposite of love. The opposite. Look at verse 12. Love one another, not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Here's a negative example. Cain is a negative example that you ought to avoid. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like him. He was of his father the devil. We know that because he killed his own brother. And why did he do that, John says? Why did he kill his brother? What reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And the application comes to us in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. The world has always hated the church. Satan's children have always hated God's children all the way back to Cain and Abel. So John says, don't be shocked. This is how it's always been. This is, you should expect this. The world hates us because our deeds are righteous and their deeds are evil. Our righteous deeds expose their evil deeds... This angers them and often leads them to murder and persecution. So murder then is the opposite of love. It's exemplified in Cain. It's often expressed in murder. It's characteristic of the world, but it should never characterize those who have been transformed by the gospel. So the antiquity of love and the antithesis of love. But John has two more lessons on love that he wants to present to us in this passage, and those will be the subject of our attention this morning. So, number three. Lesson number three. We see the assurance of love. The assurance of love. Look at verse 14. 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Very practical. Very practical. How can you know you're a Christian? How can you know you're saved? How can you know you're headed for heaven? Because your life is now characterized by love. Love for God and love for others. We are to love the brethren. 
And notice that John describes salvation here in terms that are familiar to us. If you've read Jesus, if you've read Paul, you've seen this metaphor before. He describes it as having passed out of death into life. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Salvation is a supernatural miracle equal to resurrection. You get that? Your salvation is a miracle. For someone to go from hating God, loving sin, loving self, to be transformed into a new creature, that is a miracle from heaven. Sometimes people say, well, this person needs the gospel. This, this person's down and out. He's addicted to drugs. This person needs the gospel. Friends, everyone needs the gospel, and everyone's conversion's a miracle. It's a miracle, just as much a miracle when a self-righteous Pharisee becomes a Christian as it is when a drug addict becomes a Christian. It's a miracle. Salvation is going from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, if we're going to understand this metaphor, it's important that we understand what the Bible means by death. What the Bible means by death. When the Bible speaks about death, essentially it conveys the idea of separation. Death is separation. And there are three forms of death in the Bible. There's physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Physical death is separation from the body and the material world. Separation from the body and the material world. Paul defines it that way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. He says there that he prefers to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's death for a Christian. Death, as it's commonly been said, for a Christian is nothing but a change of address. We go from being here in the body to being absent and being with the Lord. So death is separation from the body. James 2 also defines it that way. In James 2 verse 26, James says, The body without the spirit is dead. The body without the spirit is dead. Paul said the same thing in Philippians 1.23. He says there that he has the desire to depart and be with Christ. Depart from what? Depart from the body in the material world to go be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. So death, physical death, is separation from the body. That doesn't mean you cease to be conscious. You will be conscious at death. You'll be conscious in one of two places. Either in heaven, or if you're an unbeliever, in hell. In hell, in torment under the wrath of God. But death is physical separation. But the Bible also talks about spiritual death. Spiritual death. And spiritual death is separation from God and the life of God. Separation from God and the life of God. In Isaiah 59.2, it says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. A separation between you and your God. Ephesians 4.18 says that unbelievers are excluded from the life of God. They're excluded from God's life. That's what spiritual death is. Separation from God and the life of God. It is to be in a state of slavery to sin. It is to be totally dominated by unredeemed sinful humanness. Totally dominated by sinful corruption. A theological term that you may have heard of before that we often use to describe this condition is total depravity. Total depravity. That does not mean that everyone is as wicked as they could be God is gracious, and in His common grace, He restrains our evil. But what total depravity means is that every person is totally corrupt to the core of their being, and that that corruption affects the totality of their being, their intellect, their emotions, their volition, their will, etc. The entirety of our being naturally is corrupted by sin. Men are naturally in a state of total corruption and deadness, so that they have no ability to love God, know God, please God, or come to God, apart from a miracle of divine grace. Men are dead to the things of God, apart from resurrection, spiritual resurrection. And that is exactly what happens at conversion. We go from death to life. Jesus defined salvation this way as well. 
In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That's salvation. Then verse 25, He adds this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That is salvation. You go from being dead in sin, you go from being separated from God in communion with God and the life of God to being in communion with Him and possessing His divine life. If you're a Christian, you've come to know God. That's the fundamental fact about you. You know God. John 17.3 says, to know Him is to have eternal life. God is life. To be separated from the One who is life is death. To know the One who is life is to have life. We have, as it's been said before, the life of God in our soul. That's salvation. God communicates His own divine life to the believer so that we have the life of God in our soul. And Jesus affirms there in John 5 that that life is granted to us by hearing His Word and His voice in the Gospel. God grants life through the Gospel. In Ephesians 2, Paul defines salvation in a similar way. He says there, "...you were dead in your trespasses and sins." in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what it is to be dead in sin. It is to be given over to a course of sin, enslaved to sin, having Satan work in you under His dominating influence, and it is to be a child of wrath as the rest of the human race. And by the way, every person is born in that condition. Every person is born in that condition. We're not born good. We're not born neutral. We are born in sin and spiritual death. David says that, Psalm 51.5. He says, In iniquity my mother brought me forth, in sin my mother conceived me. Born in a state of spiritual death and sin. But the good news comes to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. But God. If you're not familiar with those two words, you need to be. Those are the most glorious words in Scripture. Apart from the but in Scripture, there's no salvation. Right? But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him. That is the glorious good news of the Gospel. We go from death to life. Christ raises us up with Him. That's the new birth. So now we possess the life of God in our souls. That's the same as what he said back in verse 9. His seed abides in you. We have His life, His nature, His Spirit, His Word all abiding in us. And that life will manifest itself in certain ways. There are many evidences of this new life. But one such evidence that John points out here is that of love. So he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Now, it's important that you note what John does not say here. Okay? John does not say we come from death to life because we love the brethren. John doesn't say we pass from death to life because of love, as if we earn salvation by loving. But it's the key word here is the word know. He says we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Love does not save us. It evidences salvation. Love does not produce salvation. Salvation produces love. Love is not the means of salvation. It is the evidence that salvation has occurred. And the difference between those two is one of extreme importance. 
So we know. We know we've passed out of death into life. If your life is marked by love, then you can have confidence that you are a Christian. You can have confidence that you are a child of God. Because that new life that you possess manifests itself in practical love for other people. But the flip side comes in verse 14, the end of verse 14. He who does not love abides in death. Love provides assurance of salvation. The absence of love gives evidence that salvation has never occurred. If your life's marked by love, you know you're a Christian. If your life's marked by hatred, you know that you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. This is the evidence. This is taught all throughout Scripture. 1 John 2, John taught this. He says there, the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you claim to be in the light, in Christ, in the realm of salvation, but your life is marked by the absence of love, you're a liar. That's what John says, black and white. Black and white. He said the same thing in chapter 4. There he says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is as to His nature, is love. And those who possess His nature in regeneration, in the new birth, will manifest that reality through love toward others. So love, then, is the evidence of the new birth. And John learned this from Jesus. Jesus said this in John 13.35, By this all men will know that you are My disciples, if what? You love one another. How can the world know you are a Christian? How can you know you're a Christian? Because you love. Because you love. That's the mark. And those who do not love remain in spiritual death. In verse 15, John states this even more emphatically. Verse 15, he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's harsh language, isn't it? That's strong. So much for seeker-sensitive Jesus. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Because God sees not only what you do, but what you think. He sees not only your actions, but your thoughts. Not only your life, but your heart. And to hate someone in the heart is to commit murder because murder flows from where? The heart. John 15, Jesus says, out of the heart proceeds murder and evil thoughts and so on and so forth. So therefore, to hate someone within your heart is to commit murder. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Matthew 5. He said, look, you were told by the ancients, do not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Let me translate that for you. If you're angry enough with someone to insult them, you are already a murderer. You're already guilty enough to go to hell. If you're driving in traffic, someone cuts you off and you flip them the bird and curse them and call them a name, you're guilty enough to go to hell. You've already committed murder. One author said this, Hatred is the desire to get rid of someone whether or not one has the nerve or the occasion to perform the act. You've already done it in your heart. You've already killed him. There would be a lot more murders if we knew there weren't consequences, wouldn't there? If I knew I could just wipe this guy out and it'd all be okay, how many of us would do that? At one point in our life, I think all of us would have done that at some point. That's why Romans says their feet are swift to shed blood. But in God's common grace, He restrains that murderous desire through government and civil law and consequences, etc., But all of us are ultimately murderers at heart, apart from grace. Calvin said it this way, We wish Him to perish whom we hate. We wish Him to perish whom we hate. And therefore, hatred is murder 
in the heart. So all who insult others, who injure others, who kill others, who show indifference to others, have committed murder in their heart, and those whose lives are marked by these things are not true believers. The issue is not that murderers can't be forgiven. Of course they can. Paul was. If a murderer repents and turns to Christ, he'll be forgiven. The issue is not that Christians never manifest some of these things. Of course we do. The issue is still the habitual pattern of our lives. Anyone whose life is marked by habitual hatred and indifference and insult and injury and murder is not a true believer. He abides in spiritual death. John says, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in Him. So love provides assurance, and the lack of love gives evidence that we do not belong to Him. That is the assurance of love. But there's one more lesson here that John has for us. Fourthly, he teaches us about the application of love. The application of love. We see that in verses 16 to 18. First, he points us to the model And then He makes an application for us. Look at verse 16. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. We know love by this. John's about to give us a definition of love. Our culture doesn't understand what love is. Many of us are confused about what love is. If I asked you to give me a definition of love, what do you think you'd write? Here's here's the biblical definition. John says we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. Us. That's love. Love is selfless, sacrificial service for the good of another and the glory of God. Love is selfless, sacrificial service for the good of another and the glory of God. True love sacrifices oneself. It serves another at one's own expense. It serves another at one's own expense. And we know that Because He laid down His life for us. John says the same thing in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. There he says this, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. That's love. Christ, the eternal God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who from all eternity sat upon the throne of God, the very one we've hated, we've despised, we've offended, the one whose law we have broken, that very one came from heaven to earth, cloaked His glory under the cloaks of human flesh, lived a perfect life in our place, then went to a Roman cross and died a bloody horrific death under God's wrath for our salvation. That's love. That's love. The King of glory was slaughtered under the wrath of God to save wretched sinners like us. That's love. It's much more than the cross. It's much more than nails. It's much more than a crown of thorns. It's much more than Romans and Jews conspiring against Him. It's the fact that He was literally crushed by God to pay for sin. He paid what we could never pay. And He did it to satisfy God's justice and turn away God's wrath from those who deserve it. So that the wonderful truth of what we call penal substitutionary atonement, Jesus is our substitute, He paid a penalty, that wonderful reality becomes the greatest expression and definition of love. That's why in John 15, 13, Jesus could say, greater love has no one than this, than He laid down His life for His friend. That is the greatest expression of love. Self-sacrifice for another. That's exactly what Christ did for us. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You ever had problems doing something good for an enemy? Christ, when He gave Himself, it's not like He died for a bunch of good people who loved Him. Christ gave Himself for people who hated Him. And He did it to make them His friends. That's love. Christ gave Himself. 
Ephesians 5.27 or 5.25 says this, that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. It's a self-giving love. Selfless sacrifice. And then John makes the application to us. We love that part, right? Christ gave Himself for us. But now here's the application. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He gave His life for us. We ought to give our lives for one another. One writer pointed out that, uh, you notice what verse this is? It's 3.16, right? There's another John 3.16. John 3.16 gives us an explanation of love. John, 1 John 3.16 gives us an application of love. This is what we do and respond. We lay down our lives for the brethren. He's already given us a negative example in Cain. Now he gives us a positive example in Christ. Don't be like Cain, be like Christ. Don't be like Satan, be like God. Don't hate love. Love. Back in chapter 2, verse 6, John said, we ought to walk as He walked. We ought to live like Him. And His walk was a walk of love. So we ought to love as He loved. Ephesians 5.2 commands us to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ gave Himself for you, you give yourself for others. Chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, John makes the same application. After saying that God loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, He then says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love like God. Love like Christ. Selflessly and sacrificially. And again, where does John learn all this from? He learns it from Jesus. He gets it all from Him. In John 13.34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you. That you should love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. You say, wait a minute, I thought love was an old message. Why does He say it's new? Love is an old message. But yet in Christ it's also a new message because He raises the bar. He raises the standard. The old message is love your neighbor as yourself. The new message is love others the way Christ loved you. Selflessly and sacrificially. So we must give up ourselves for the brethren. And that means more than merely dying for someone. Obviously, that's the greatest expression of love, and it certainly includes that, but it encompasses more than that. That's why in verse 17, look what John goes on to say. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Not only is love seen in giving your life, but in giving your goods, giving your possessions. Not only in dying, but even living. But the principle is the same. Love is sacrifice. Sacrifice. You know, back in verse 12, John uses Cain as an example, and he makes it clear that murder is an expression of hatred. Here in verse 17, it's indifference that is an expression of hatred. He says, he says this is a person who sees his brother in need. That's the key. He sees his brother in need. He has the world's goods, but he closes his heart against him. That's the problem. It's someone who sees his brother as a need. He has the ability to meet that need, and he doesn't meet it. John says, how does the love of God abide in that person? The answer is easy, isn't it? It doesn't. It doesn't. That person's never experienced the love of God in Christ, and therefore he doesn't love others. That's why. James gives us a similar example in chapter 2 of his letter. There he says this, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What good does that do? I'm hungry. Oh, I'm praying for you, brother. Be, be filled. Now, see you later. doesn't help anybody. Then James says, Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead, and love without sacrifice is dead. Love without sacrifice and service and labor is a false 
love. True love demonstrates itself in good deeds toward others for God's glory. That's why Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your neighbor does. And that's what love does. It meets needs. So love is sacrifice. It meets needs. It's selfless. It puts others first. It does as Philippians 2 says. It considers one another as more important than itself. That's love. Love is expressed when you give your wife a break and wash the dishes. Love is expressed when you take time out of your day to talk to someone else and to help them and meet their needs. When you open your home and give them a place to stay. When you provide them a meal. That's love. That's love. And that's the way we're called to love one another. Love is sacrifice. Hatred is indifference. Love is service of others. Hatred is service of self. It's self-seeking. Love is selfless. Hatred is selfish. So someone can say they love a person all they want. The way you know what they love is by the way they live, by their deeds, by their actions. Talk is cheap, right? Actions speak louder than words. That's what John says. That's why he goes on in verse 18 and says this, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Don't just say you love someone with your tongue, with your words, with your mouth. Don't just say it, show it. Show it with your deeds. Love in deed and in truth. Sincere, genuine love expressed from the heart by action. By action. If you only love when it's convenient for you, that's not love. Love sacrifices and proves itself in action. That's a definition of biblical love. Selfless, sacrificial service for the good of another, and it's not seen merely in what we say, but what we do. Not merely in our words, but in our actions. So we have here a contrast then between God's children and the devil's children. Between Cain and Christ. Between hatred and love. Hatred was exemplified in Adam's firstborn Cain. Love is exemplified in God's firstborn Christ. Cain is a negative example. Christ is a positive example. Don't be like Cain, be like Christ. If you hate like Cain, you're of your father the devil. If you love like Christ, you're of your father God. That's the clear distinction. This contrast couldn't be any clearer. We don't have to grope around wondering if I'm a Christian or if this person's a Christian. We'll know it. Their deeds will show it. And so we must examine ourselves in the light of this contrast. In the light of this test of love. What is it that marks your life today? Is your life marked by hatred, selfishness, self-centeredness, injury, insult? Are you self-consumed? If that's your life, then you do not belong to God. You do not belong to Christ. And if that's your life today, my plea to you is that you would come to Christ because you can never love like this you can never express Christ-like love unless you've experienced that love for yourself in the Gospel. So come to Christ. Repent. Believe. Deny yourself. Come after Christ. And then you'll experience His saving love and be enabled by His grace to love others. And again, if that's you, if you feel like you're not a believer, you hear this message this morning, and you think, you know, there's no way I'm a Christian. My life doesn't look like that. Then come talk with me after the service. As always, I would be glad and thrilled to counsel you with the condition of your soul. But if your life is marked by hatred, you don't belong to Him. And again, we're not talking about perfection, right? No one loves perfectly. Even the best of saints, the most mature saints, express acts of selfishness at times. Even the best of saints love imperfectly, right? None of us love perfectly. We're still talking about direction, the pattern of your life. If your life is dominated by sin, it's because you are of the devil. If it's dominated by love and righteousness and selflessness and sacrifice, you belong to God. And if you love Him, it's because He first loved you, right? We're thankful for that. His love is what produces your love. And if you see that in your life, praise God, you can have confidence that you're a Christian. 
So the antiquity of love, it's an old message. The antithesis of love, hatred, as exemplified in Cain. Then you have Cain as a negative example, Christ as a positive example. Then you have the assurance of love. Love provides evidence that someone's a Christian. The lack thereof provides evidence that someone's not a Christian. And finally, the application of love. He gave Himself for us. We ought to give ourselves for one another. So brothers and sisters, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have made this so clear to us in Your Word. We know that love is sacrifice. Your Word tells us that. Christ has demonstrated that. We also know, Lord, that if we're not willing to give up our possessions and our time, we certainly aren't going to be willing to give up our lives. If we're not willing to make the lesser sacrifices, we'd never make the greater sacrifices. So I pray that we would be a people who love one another. I pray that as a church, we would be a people who open our hearts toward one another and toward others outside of our own church. That we would serve, sacrifice, give, and love even at our own expense. That we would emulate the Savior who loved us in such a way that He gave Himself for us. What a gospel. This is gospel love. This is gospel-fueled love. Gospel-motivated love. We love because You love us. And we pray that You would help us to excel still more and more in that way. I pray for anyone here this morning who may not know Christ, who may be here and is still in a state of spiritual death. Their lives are marked by sin and hatred and selfishness. My prayer is that You would awaken them and alarm them and that You would bring them to life in Christ and that they would come to know the Savior and have Your love manifested in them. And for those of us who do know You, Lord, give us grace that we might love You and love Your people more. Give us confidence, give us assurance of our salvation, and help us to live the rest of our life for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.